It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode number 44 in my series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War II. I've been traveling through the war in mostly chronological fashion, and I'm currently right smack in the middle of 1942. To be honest, there are a lot of events that I could focus on in 1942 and thoroughly enjoy doing it, but there is one particular event unfolding in 1942 that I would prefer to just bypass. It's a dark and painful subject, but God won't let me bypass it. Hey, this is Eric. Before we dive into today's Daily Thunder message and explore what the German High Command called the Final Solution, I wanted to mention the discipleship training that we are offering this summer. Starting this past Monday, June 15th, Ellerslie is offering our very first online edition of our classic five-week discipleship training, and it is not too late to join in on the adventure. You will have until June 30th to jump aboard. And get this, we're offering this training on a donation-only basis, which means anyone, no matter their financial condition, can consider taking part. Please visit ellerslie.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's go back in time to Germany in 1942. A great darkness is covering the German society, and three distinct roles are forming amongst the German people. Those that are perpetrating evil, those that are having evil perpetrated against them, and those that are doing nothing as they see the evil being perpetrated. As we look back on this time 78 years ago, we have a weighty question on our hearts and minds as distant observers. Was there a fourth I am moved by something this morning, even as I, I begin this. There's the last couple days I've been preparing this message, not knowing exactly where my feet were going to land in it. And so I've been studying a movement of evil. I know it's terrible, but a movement of evil in 1942, very specifically where we're at in the story, in the unfolding uh, plan of World War II. And that is what's taking place in Germany. And there's a, what, what they would call a Jewish problem. And the way that this Jewish problem is going to be dealt with, they're going to launch into what's called the final solution in 1942, which many of us simply understand in uh, layman's terms as the Holocaust. And the Holocaust begins long before this. In other words, the story of the Holocaust isn't just a momentary decision. It is a growing evil. It is a growing menace. And it's almost like the excuse is now fully in place to justify a very extreme uh, step forward in eradicating the Jewish people uh, from the world. And to get close to that type of a study is hard to start with. It's also hard to know what to do with it. How could this be edifying to the church? How could this be helpful? And so as a result, it's easier to ignore, which is actually disturbing to me as well. <laughs> I want to know how to leverage World War II in my own life, in my own soul, because I see parallels constantly. And the fact that, I mean, the, the most disturbing aspect of it is what we could call the bystanders. It's those that knew that something was taking place and did nothing. The perpetrators, that's a deeply disturbing thought, you know, the, the fact that many soldiers participated in this. And these were just normal, everyday Jewish soldiers that grew up in Christian homes. 
and they participated in this evil because of, I guess simply put, a social pressure. When social pressure is put on most of us, we conform. We conform to the pattern of the world around us because we don't want to stand out, which is why it's so critical not to conform to the pattern of the world, but to be conformed to the image of Christ, which will stand out in the midst of a darkened age and will likely lead to your extermination. I'll just sort of prep you for that in the story. Now, this is a very simple enunciation of it. I actually sort of decided to hold back in this particular message and just lay out a simple concept. But as I've been going through this, my soul has been, I don't know if the term is grieved, but I feel so deeply moved by the Spirit of God. And even though what I've been studying happened so many years ago, it's, it's a weird thing. I didn't walk through a Holocaust museum. I didn't, I mean, wh- why, why would I be so moved? It's interesting, but this is a, this is a, a pain in God's heart too. And I, I feel like I've brushed up against that, that there is something about this history that matters to God. And it's not just something to wipe away to say, hey, well, that won't happen again. Uh, famous words that usually do not prove true. Uh, The war to end all wars, and then 20 years later we have a greater war, World War II. If you don't deal with evil, it grows back, which is one of the things we were talking about uh, in the last message. To deal with thistle, you have to deal with the root. And so Roosevelt's decision to go against the Japanese and to put all of his efforts against the Japanese and to, to, to finally just silence their noise in the Pacific makes more sense to the Americans because that's the near and present danger. That's on their shorelines. However, to deal with Germany is actually the ultimate strategy because if Germany falls, so does Japan. Whereas if Japan falls, Germany is still strong. So Roosevelt is going to decide in his war policy to go against Germany and to deal with the root, or as scripture will call it, the strong man. Bind the strong man, and then it's like the rest of the dominoes of surrender begin to fall. And so we have a strong man. We could call it a very evil power. It's bigger than Hitler. Something, a menace is in our world at this hour. And we're not just talking about back in 1942, but right now. And it has the same agenda. In other words, the same thing that moved Hitler in this Nazi regime is still around. And so we have to recognize that this evil power is dealt with in only one sure way, and that is the power of the cross. The shed blood of Jesus is the avenue of victory. I call this the fourth role, which will make sense as we progress. I've struggled. I, I had different titles for this that were a lot more dark. (laughs) It's hard to talk about this. It's hard to name something. I had the term the extermination war. It's like, eh, uh, that's that's what it was. It was an extermination war. Uh, And I had had all sorts of other ones I won't go into, but I'm trying to figure out how to relate this where the the audience doesn't go into a comatose state almost for defensiveness. I don't want to see that. I don't want to think about that. How do we take something from our history, understand it in a way that actually brings hope and help. Because there's not a lot in this story other than morbid fascination. That's, that's what you feel like as you get close to it. It's like, I don't think that's beneficial or edifying to anyone. So as you see me trying to handle this, you'll, you'll notice my deliberate decisions. So 
I'm going to basically give an, uh, an understanding of how Germany is working in this war. They have two faces. They have a face that we in the Western world see, and then they have another face. You see, most of the Western world, even a lot of Germany and German citizens at this time in, in 1942 still don't understand what we could call the extermination war. They don't understand the true malevolence of the Nazi regime. They're still thinking positive thoughts towards their government. Hey, this is expansion. This is going to create jobs. This is going to increase our economy. This is actually really good for us. They're telling themselves that over and over and over again because they see things and they're not healthy. But hey, this is our homeland and we love our homeland. We trust our, our government. And so they're talking themselves into this the entire while. They actually are ignorant for the most part, of what is taking place in Poland and the extermination of the uh, Polish intelligentsia and then the subsequent extermination of the Jews in Poland. They don't see it. Remember, they're Germans. They're not like traveling across war lines and walking into occupied Poland and visiting Jewish ghettos. They're not doing that. So as a result, they're kept from this and the propaganda machine of the Germans is making sure they don't know about it so that they stay loyal, they stay faithful, they stay supportive. We don't need anyone questioning what we're doing. We're the ones that know what's best for Germany. Let us handle this. And so as a result, most of the society doesn't actually understand what is taking place. And most of us, you could just imagine how much more so, in the Western world are blind to the extremes of this. We know that Hitler's already sort of tipped his hat towards the fact that he's anti-Jewish, okay, which is disturbing. And yet, to what degree that is, I mean, there's a lot of people that might be anti-Jewish in America right now, but that doesn't mean they're, they have extermination camps built. And so, as a result, you know that there are white supremacists out there, but that doesn't mean that they're just going around and, and shooting uh, black people all day long. And so, we know that these extremes exist, but we also presume that there is law and there is order that keeps these weird people, these extremists, at bay. Of course, now in America, we're sort of wondering if there is law in order to keep these extremists at bay, but that's a different discussion. So in Germany, you, you get into the mindset and you recognize even if the German citizens don't know, how much more so the Western world doesn't fully understand what is taking place in Germany in 1942. This silent horror that is unfolding in the landscape of Eastern Europe, up through Poland, into Russia, is so extreme that I, there's no way I, I could even try and describe it for you. I, I would fail with words, and there would be a point of uh, propriety that I would cross so quickly in the story that I, I, it's sort of like, well, I don't even know how to go there. How do you introduce, like, how would I talk to my kids about what happened in World War II in the Eastern Front. So we have two wars that are, are taking place. We have a war uh, of ideology and a war of uh, hatred, which is going to be between Germany and their foes to the East, which Soviet Russia, they are, if, if you were to bake, uh, break open a, a Nazi and say, what are your two biggest hate points? What do you think needs to be removed from the world? It would be Jews and Bolsheviks. And they mix the two together. They look at communism as Jewish. And so as a result, you're going to see this idea of Jews and communism being the great enemy of the German race. This is the great impurity. 
And so as a result, wherever they come, they want to, instead of purify it later and deal with all this baggage later, they're going to come in and deal with it first thing. So they begin what's called an extermination war to the east. It's very different than the way they're fighting to the west. When they go into Belgium, Holland, and France, they behave very different. They actually behave with more of the gentlemanly uh, noblesse oblige. The German version of it isn't very impressive, I'll just tell you that. So I'm going to sort of call it the evil gentleman. Yes, they're gentlemen, but they're rather evil in how they do it. And every other nation even would say this. Back in World War I, this is the same way they behaved. It's like to them, they think they're behaving just fine, but everyone else in the world is like, Germans, uh, guys, this isn't how you take care of your prisoners. This is not how you come into a city and handle things. And yet to them, they feel that it's important that they exert authority. Everyone fears them. And so as a result, they will commit atrocities to bring people into obedience, right? And for them, that's just how good parenting works. It's, it's just like this extreme uh, approach to authority in their mindset in the German race at the time. And so as a result, you see them carry that out in war atrocities. But what we're calling atrocities to the West are nothing as they have to the East, Hitler is going to commission his soldiers to go to the east to take on Russia, and he's going to say, kill them, kill them all. Women, children, doesn't matter if they're soldiers, kill them. Okay, now that is a whole new brand of warfare, and it is so extreme that we have a tough time swallowing that. So, as you sort of look at what, because most of us understand just a bit about the Holocaust, but the whole thing is a Holocaust. The whole thing to the east, what, what is going to happen to those of Soviet Russia is so extreme. I think it's around 27 million people are going to die in this, and it's, it's so extreme and hyperbolized that we have a tough time even knowing how to grip and, and to process. So the Western Front and the Eastern Front. The Eastern Front I call a bloodthirsty monster. It doesn't have any human characteristic to it. And what you're going to see is there's going to be a backlash. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but Stalin and the Russians are not going to be too happy about this. This is like evil against evil. And evil doesn't respond well to evil. <laughs> there's no forgiveness here. There is going to be a backlash and a retaliation, which is where East Germany comes from. It's communist, right? There is a sweeping back of Stalin to end this war that is so extreme that you could almost say it's worse than everything that happened before it. It's just a, it's a hard study, I'll just put it that way, to study the Eastern Front of World War II. The Einsatzgruppen, I, and I, I can't speak very good German to really pronounce that uh, well because there's probably like a <laughs> sound in it that I'm not getting, the Einsatzgruppen. But these are special forces that are assigned by Hitler, and if I was going to describe them, they're really bad police officers, like bad morally, <laughs> bad. These guys are like an evil SWAT team. And it is, people are concerned about our police here in America. Believe me, you're going to want to say thank you to every police officer you've ever met once you meet the Eidsensgruppen. These guys are terrible. And what they're going to do is so nasty that I, I, I really can't describe it, okay? I'm just gonna leave it at that. But they have a job. They are assigned, they're sort of above the law almost, like with a license to kill. And they are to go in and cleanse society after the Germans take territory. 
So they come in, and oftentimes they'll even jump ahead of the German soldiers to sneak into a village so they can get all the Jews before they run. And then they will just execute them. These are unsuspecting people, have no idea what's going on. They're just rounded up, and usually they would dig out trenches, stick the people in, and then just shoot them down and then bury them. And this was mass extermination. Uh, And so the Einsatzgruppen was the arm of Hitler to pull this off. The goal of the Einsatzgruppen at first was to exterminate the Polish intelligentsia. This is how World War I is going to start. September 1st, 1939, Germany is going to invade Poland. Now, Germany had already invaded, that you could already say that they had invaded Austria, they had invaded the Sudetenland, they had taken Czechoslovakia, and the Allies had done nothing. So finally the Allies say, hey, you can't keep doing this. which was a wise thing. They could have stopped the war a long time earlier if they just stood up to Hitler when Hitler was weaker. But they have sort of pacified and disarmed and they wanted peace, peace, peace. They didn't want another war. And so Hitler's playing upon that passivity. And so they invade Poland and sure enough, the Allies finally respond. So we have the beginning of World War II. But when they take Poland, what they want is to deal with this Polish intelligentsia, the ones that would have the smarts to potentially come back with a counter maneuver against Hitler. So as a result, they're going to go in with this Einsatzgruppen and deal with this intelligentsia, this thinking class that would have any capacity whatsoever. So this is the first movement, and you're going to see Hitler with sort of the bubble thought above his head like, that worked. And so you're going to see this thought process begin to mature in and amongst the Germans because you know, a lot of us think that the original idea was extermination camps uh, for the Germans. And I can't, it does feel like that, okay? When you look back, you're like, okay, I can see why we would conclude that. However, you also see when you study the terrain of the decision-making and you get the reports from even their meetings that their first thing is we need to purge them out of our society, but their idea of purging is first to export them, to get rid of them. Like, go somewhere else, please. Then they have to solve problems because no one wants to receive them. And so you're going to see this growing thought process, and maybe Hitler had it the whole time, like he's going to, he's going to ultimately bring it to the extermination camps, but he wants every one of his, his officers to come to the same conclusion. I don't know, okay? I can't speak to that. But this is how it starts, and you're going to see this thought process begin to increase because the Einsatzgruppen is going to get more and more power because of how well they handled the Polish intelligentsia. I mean, they just obliterated them. I mean, they killed them all. And then they're going to start killing the Jews in Poland. And this is like very effective because we're like cleansing society. It's like, a, a, have you ever heard of a cleanse? Like where you fast for a while and you take certain things and it cleans. It's like very effective. We're really getting healthy here. That's the mindset of the Nazis. They're getting healthy. They're getting all their impurities out very quickly. So it was built to exterminate the Polish intelligentsia and prevent them from creating a coordinated effort of retaliation against the German army. So the plan of 1941 for the Einsatzgruppen, so we're in 1942 in our flow, so I'm sort of building up to that point. Uh, They were commissioned to put down resistance behind enemy lines when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. So now you have Operation Barbarossa in 1941, which is the attack of Germany. It's a surprise attack, dagger in the back, to Stalin, who was actually working with and supplying military support to Hitler before this. And Hitler is sort of 
nursing this notion of, of destroying communism. So he befriends Stalin and says, yeah, we don't like you know, all these Western allies. And so Stalin is feeding him all sorts of military materials. Even the day that they are attacking him, there's still trainloads of materials coming from the Soviet Union, military machinery and everything from the Soviet Union to Germany. Talk about a betrayal, okay? This is a, this is a bad thing. Uh, and yet, so what he's going to do is Hitler now in his um, initial mode of, oper uh, uh, his mode of operations is going to say, Einsatzgruppen, all right, you guys are going with us. We're going in as the German soldiers, and when we reach a village, you exterminate the impurities. So that included quite a few different things. The Jews, the communist leaders, the peasants, and those that were invalid, disabled, uh, deformed in any way. Destroy them. Get these impurities out because this is now our territory. And we want it to be befitting of German occupation. So the mindset is pure wickedness, pure evil, and I think all of us can discern that without much difficulty. So I, I'm sorry to even put up one picture of this. I could put up a lot more disturbing pictures, but this is the normal Einsatzgruppen. Get them together. This is quick extermination. And then bury them. And so the, the picture, if you're getting this via podcast, I don't even know that I want to describe it, but it's a whole bunch of Einsatzgruppen soldiers with their machine guns or their guns pointed down into a ditch. You can't see the ditch, praise God. But you get the idea, and it's deeply disturbing. I mean, I, I've been wrestling with this reality, trying to understand, God, what, what does this mean to me? How do I respond as a righteous man right now? Even though this happened so many years ago. So here we are, and we have a problem in Germany. From the Nazi mind, this is a problem, okay? Because, and I don't know if you've ever heard me teach on the fact that uh, my viewpoint of uh, Nazi fascism is going to be extreme conservatism, okay? In other words, it's a high view of law. It's a high view of order. It's a very disturbed concept, okay? It's like hyper-conservatism where the point where if you're a conservative, you're like, that has nothing to do with me. And that's the way most liberals feel about extreme communism too. In other words, you have sort of liberalism and you have conservatism and then you have hyper-liberalism like Stalin and you have hyper-conservatism like Hitler, okay? And no, none of us want to associate with either side. And most people don't, okay? That, those are definite hyper-dimensions uh, to it. But think about it from the conservative mindset. We want purity, so, do, so does the other side, okay? And, but it's like, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, just shipping everyone off, like the conservative, this was a conservative I was talking to the other day, ship all these liberals off to a foreign country, let them have their own island, and let them do whatever they want with it, but we don't want them here. Okay, now just follow me on this. What does that sound like? That sounds like an extreme or a hyper version of something. We as Christians don't think this way. This is our mission field right there. Why would we ship our mission field off somewhere else where we couldn't reach them? These are the ones that we are called to love and to serve. I get it. When you remove the gospel mandate from our souls, of course we want peace. Hitler doesn't have a gospel mandate. He has a pure German race mindset. And this is a threat. The Jews in his mind and the communists, or he, he would call it the Bolsheviks, are the ones that stabbed the Germans in the back at the end of World War I. And that's the whole thing behind all this. All of this comes back to what's called the stab in the back theory. Way back in 1918, 
the Germans are going to be nursing this wound, this betrayal that they believe they were betrayed in their own country by the Jews and the communists, and that's why they lost World War I. They were sabotaged. And so Hitler, I mean, just read Mein Kampf. This is what it's about. And so he is going to build this case. He's going to nurse this bitterness. And now it is going to explode on history's stage. So the problem to a Jew, to a, to a Jew, to a, it is a problem to a Jew, but the problem in the German mind is Jews are everywhere. They are influential and well-educated. They pose the greatest threat to the German agenda. What should we do with them? There are 11 million of these problems in Europe. Hmm, what do we do? And so this is the Germans' problem. So I'm going to call this the first solution because the ultimate solution of the extermination camps is called the final solution. So I'm going to call this the first solution is the ghettos. So these are little districts that are created in the major cities that are then walled off or I don't barbed wired off that are going to contain Jews and they're going to segregate them out and there's going to be great problems, great health problems in these ghettos. There's going to be great starvation in these ghettos, great abuses and tortures that are taking place in these ghettos. But the concept is get the Jews out of out of any and all positions of influence and quarantine them from society and from other groups of Jews. Give them the back-breaking jobs. So get the strongest ones in the bunch and make them build railroads and roads for us. Back-breaking work. This isn't like where they had heavy machinery and they could build the roads. And This is like man-made roads. And so they're going to use the Jews to do their war work. Okay, so that's one of the strategies. And they're going to then ghettoize them. They're going to segregate them out. And they're going to then uh, ration to these Jews what they feel they can spare. Okay, so as a result, you're going to have huge health concerns in there because they're not going to send in doctors. And if they do, they're limited with supplies because all the supplies need to go to the Germans. So you're going to see this strange diminishment of value that is going to be evidenced in and through the ghetto system. Whereas, yes, they have space and they have life and we're giving them food and water. So if anyone asks, hey, you know, we're at least doing this. However, it's a rationed portion so that the rest of it can go to the good Germans because that's the race we want to sustain. This is the one we're sort of wanting to dispose of. And so you see this beginning rationale that is beginning to unfold and to study the ghettos is, that would be enough, by the way, if all that happened in World War II were the ghettos uh, for the Jews, uh, I mean, it would be horrifying enough. And yet it's not gonna stop that. That's not the final solution. So then the problem in 1942, this is an interesting issue because you have, you're right smack in the midst of Operation Barbarossa, Germans attacking Soviet Russia. They thought this would be over in three months. And to be honest with you, if you see the beginnings of Operation Barbarossa, you would have thought along with the Germans that it would have been done in three months as well. Germany was so much more powerful. Russia is a slow starting engine. And they take a while, but once they get going, they have such massive resource that if they get going, watch out. And that's what's going to happen in World War II. You're going to see Russia, though it takes a long time to get their military operations going, when they get going, they are strong. And that's what Germany is going to run into. So now this war is continuing up in Soviet Russia, and we have huge issues, supply issues, because the Germans weren't figuring they need so much supply that is coming out of Germany. They don't have a lot of territory to draw from. They're, they're, they're drawing from Germany and they're running out of supply, which is leading to food shortages back in Germany. 
Okay, now if Germany has food shortages, what do you think their logic is going to be? If they have minimal resources, who do you think is going to suffer? Okay, I mean, so you can just follow the logic that I've already sort of set you up for. The problem in 1942, this war in Russia is lasting longer than we thought. We have a terrible food shortage back in Germany. We have three million German Jews eating that food. We've tried deporting them, it's not working. We've tried ghettoing them, there isn't enough room. So when they're trying to deport these German Jews, these Reich Jews, out to Poland and other places, there's not enough room in the ghettos. I mean, they were literally taking out loads of these ghettoized Jews into the countryside and just shooting them down to create more room. I mean, this was like daily. It was like, I don't know what it was, five thousand a day it was like we're, we're being killed as this begins to progress it's like some huge number I don't remember what it is but it's like a huge number like that just to like hey we need to how do we get rid of these Jews the final solution is what is ultimately going to be landed on in 1942 and you're going to see the Einsatzgruppen is going to discover something and that is they're going to stick some of these Jews in vans is what they called them that had a gas uh, in them and they're going to recognize that this is a very efficient way of disposing of them. It doesn't, it, it isn't as boisterous. There's not a lot of response because the Jews don't recognize what's going to happen to them. So if you hold a gun up to their head, they respond, right? But if you just invite them into a van, they don't. And so you're going to see the mindset, again, the bubble thought that goes up above the, the head of Hitler and the Germans. They go, oh, this would be a lot easier. They don't know that we're about to kill them. And that's where you see the extermination camps come into existence. We can deal with this. The final solution is arrived at. And they call it special treatment for the Jews. If they see someone who is robust and strong, they may use them for road work or for uh, building a railroad. Okay, They still need manpower. However, if they sense any threat, like this person could be a threat, oh, they'll, they'll eliminate them immediately. But if they're women and children, uh, cart them off. In other words, we don't have space for this. They're, they're eating our food. So it's called special treatment for the Jews, also known as extermination camps. The final solution is kill them. Kill them all. So there's three obvious roles in World War II Germany. There are the murderers, there are the victims, and there are the bystanders. So when you look at that list as a Christian, that's the obvious list. I'm going to, remember the name of this message, the fourth role? Okay, aren't you glad that I gave that as an option? There's a fourth role, but very few people know about it. And there's very few people that fall into that role. Most of society is going to split into these three roles. You have the murderers, you have the victims, and you have those that are going to do nothing, which is most of society. This is a heavily Christianized society. It is very difficult for me as a pastor to talk, comprehend all of this, talk about and comprehend all of this. And here's what's important for me is that I don't cluck my tongue at 1942 Germany before I allow the Spirit of God to investigate me. What led a very strongly Christian, Protestant Christian culture to allow this and then when they saw it to do nothing? 
Whatever that is, we are just as vulnerable to it, which is why I'm burdened as I walk through this. And there is a fourth role that is imperative that we begin to cultivate the behavior of the fourth role before we get to a crisis. In some regards, we're already at crisis points. In, in issues like abortion, for many of us, we have already entered into bystander role. And, you know, to be honest, our, our statement would be, I don't know what to do. I mean, is picketing really the, the great avenue of, of solving this? It's a similar type of dynamic when you numb to a circumstance around you because you've been around it enough that it just becomes normal. It's like that unfinished part of my house. We had uh, uh, Ryan and Janelle come over and we're fixing up our house. And I have this one room with some blue chalk uh, still on the ceiling, you know, from when we were doing some, uh, some lines for lighting. And it's still there. You know, and oh, I'm going to get to that once I finish. But then I get distracted with something. And then that blue chalk has been there so long that I start living with the blue chalk on the ceiling. It's still there. And it's a project to get rid of it. It doesn't come off very easily. And so as a result, you can end up living with something and totally be ignorant of the fact that it's there. I mean, if someone asked you, is it there? Oh, yes, it's there. Is abortion happening? Yes. And what are you doing about it? Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm grieved by it, is what I am. You follow me? In other words, this is where I'm concerned uh, for us as a church. I'm concerned for me as an individual. I, I'm concerned for my family. I'm concerned for my ministry that I do not get caught in one of these three roles. The likelihood of me being the murderer is very low, okay? So I could acknowledge that up front. That, that's not really the trajectory of my life. Victim, yes, <laughs> I can see that. I can see me being one of the victim uh, people. However, very likely, I'm in a season right now where I could more likely be a bystander than anything else. And that's where I want to stick a fire underneath my own life to make sure that I am standing up and moving and activated. So Luke 10, 25 through 37 is going to give us a story that we all are familiar with, but I'm going to read it afresh. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, speaking of testing Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit inter eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Isn't it interesting just now, there's more to it, guys, but isn't it interesting that this is not just a 1942 religious system problem? Isn't it fascinating that way back here, at whatever this year would have been, 30 AD or so, somewhere in that range, you see Jesus describing the same exact thing. These are the religious these are the ones that are trained. They know what is right and what is wrong, don't they? And yet they are going to see a travesty and they're going to walk right by it. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus is a smart cookie, right? He knows exactly the illustration he's giving. And he's showing that the behavior of a Samaritan who is like, the Jews won't even deal with the Samaritans. I mean, that's an unclean thing. And yet, he's going to make the hero out of the Samaritan? What an interesting thing to do. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring it on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the guy does have an answer. And he gets it right. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Most of Germany is going to be trained in biblical literacy. They understand the Bible, but you can know the doctrines of the Bible and not know the Christ of the Bible. As I've oftentimes said, many of us focus so much on removing doctrinal doctrinal heresy that we fail to see that there is a greater heresy, and that is behavioral heresy. We're so concerned about doctrinal heresy that we overlook behavioral heresy. But God tells us to live this way, (laughs) and we're not. Why are we so concerned about doctrinal heresy that we would so quickly overlook the law of love? Isn't that the chief of all the Bible? Is this law of love? Now, I get it if you were to say, I've tried loving Eric and I just have failed at it. Well, I I could totally understand that because the gospel is going to explain you can't do this. You can't actually fulfill that royal law in and of yourself. But when you turn your life over to Jesus, he sheds abroad in your heart his love so that you actually can now give what you in and of yourself couldn't before. So actually, there's no excuse for any of us as Christians. We actually have access. It's sort of like having this huge tanker full of water there and us dying of thirst nearby it. It's like, well, I can't derive thirst from my own body or water from my own body. Well, you know, that makes sense, but you have a source right here. And as a result, you can draw enough for yourself and you can give cups of cool water to everyone around you. There is no excuse for us as Christians to sit by as bystanders, to say, I have nothing to give. We actually have everything we need for life and for godliness, godly behavior. What would God do if he were in your body right now? And that's a somewhat scary thought. If we were to say, God, you can do with this body whatever you want. You study the teachings of Jesus Christ and you're going to find out that he is a pretty radical dude. (laughs) He is going to say, yeah, uh, I want you to do this, but I could get killed if I did that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to mind the fact that there are costs and sacrifices associated with obedience. He just says, this is what love would do. And so when you go back to 1942, you have a test of such mammoth proportions for a German Christian. A German Christian in that hour has a test that I don't think we can even relate to in the smallest bit yet. 
We understand public pressure. We understand social correctness, political correctness, even religious correctness, that every environment we come into, there is an expectation of how you are to behave, what you're supposed to say, what you're not supposed to say. And yet for us, like wearing masks and uh, six-foot distancing and all the funny things we have or, or the fact that, hey, you don't share your belief system as if it's the only way. You don't say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There's just, there's rules that we have. They, those don't even touch what a German Christian would be going through in this situation. If you dare side up to a Jew and take the Jew's side in this, you're going to be treated as a Jew. Your family will be ruined. Your business will be shut down. You will lose everything and very likely be in one of those ditches and exterminated by the Eitzengruppen. Do you want to do that? You see, this is a tension at a very high level. And as I study this, there's a question in my soul. Eric, what would you do if you lived then? I know you don't, but what if you did? And there's an exercise of soul that I always have gone through in my life. And it's the, I always call it the martyrdom prep sort of process in me. It's like, okay, if this ever happened to me, what is my thought process? There is something that was common amongst those that actually helped the Jews. And that is, that's what's interesting, is there's a common thread. And that is that the way they were groomed by their parents was different. It was behavioral in its emphasis as opposed to just doctrinal. And as a result, when I think of training my kids or I think of training anyone here at Ellerslie or the church, what do you think I begin to feel the weight on? I want to prepare us to help the Jews in 1942. I know we live in a different time in a different circumstance and a different challenge, but whatever that is that causes someone to do something is all I care about. I want to be doing Christians, not just thinking Christians, not just hearing Christians, but Christians that live this out. It's a deep burden that is welling within me. So the three obvious roles in World War II Germany, the murderers, the victims, and the bystanders. You ready for the fourth role? Martin Luther King Jr. is going to say it this way. The first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That is the question before you. Martin Luther King's final speech. He reverses the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You see, it is funny because we ask the Levites question. If I do stop to help this man, what will happen to me? That's an unclean man. That's, I mean, I don't want to get blood on my hands. I don't want to have anything to do with this mess. And I don't, I mean, the robbers could hop out and take me too. And so as a result, he walks by in his pious religiosity. What I don't want is to be that man. That's a man that was uniquely positioned with understanding of Scripture. He's a Levite. He was positioned to have ministry rights in the temple. He has a high privilege. He shares in the commonwealth of Israel. And yet, though he has knowledge, he is going to pass by silently. 
If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The four roles in World War II Germany, the murderers, the victims, number three, the bystanders, and the fourth role, the rescuers. Now, I know we don't need to compare notes in here to, for me to say, so if you were going to do you know, like a little pop quiz of which one you think you should be, we all know and we're all attracted magnetically to the fourth, but what we all sort of sense inside of ourselves as we go through this, and if we could jump into the shoes of a German Christian in this time and feel what they would have been feeling and the social pressure, the Nazis specialize in conformity. And be not conformed to the Nazi system. How do you not? Especially if you're a good German. A good German is nationalistic. A good German is a patriot. It's part of their virtue system. It's part of their heritage of Christianity. And so their Christianity is hot-wired in to their nationalism. That's part of what every good country will do is, okay, if we're a Christian nation, we're going to make Christianity a part of our patriotism. That's what we do here in America, too. And so we just have to be wise to recognize, but what if that country deviates from the word of God? What if its agenda is contrary to the agenda of the kingdom of heaven? You have to think biblically and not nationally, which is a critical split point. And so what you're going to see is those that are going to rise up as the rescuers are ones that for whatever reason, their parents invested in them the value of independent thinking. If ever there is a deviancy of any group around you, your leaders go off the reservation of the kingdom of heaven. You must stay true to Christ. That's, an, that's one factor. The other is behavioral emphasis, that you are here to love with the truth that you know. So the reason you are learning this truth is so that it would animate into action. So therefore, there is no greater disservice that you can do to God and to the work of the cross than to not activate this truth when you know to. You must do. And so some of my favorite pictures, of course, the Ten Booms are one of my all-time favorite stories. And Corey and Betsy, but their father, Casper Ten Boom, is one of my heroes because of how he is going to reason through this. To him, it is not even an option to conform to society. It never even comes into his head. Now, he's not German. He's Dutch. Okay, so maybe it's easier for us to understand that. He's going to look at the Germans coming in and say, excuse me, but I'm not going to give up my Christianity to conform to Nazism. So maybe it's easier for us to understand Caspar Tenboom. However, there's other characters even in Germany. There is, uh, and I, I'm not going to take this time to teach on those as much as to say, that's what we want. We want to find that footing, that foundation that would lead us to be a rescuer. Paul the Apostle says, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Chief operation. When you wake up in the morning, there you go. You woke up, and if you want to bring glory to God, you're a vessel to carry love. What does that love look like? Study Jesus, and you'll see the fullest animation of it. And so as a result, if you're in Nazi Germany in 1942, what's love going to look like if it's seeping out of the pores of a Christian? Oh, that's a difficult, difficult road. And so in my study of this, as I'm, I'm, I'm looking into some of the rescuers in Germany in 1942 through 45, oh, I, it's, 
it's a form of exercise of my soul which is really difficult. There was this one nurse that is going to go into the ghetto, and so she's just a German nurse, and she's going to go in. She has one of these huge hoop skirts, and she sees what's happening, so she's going to take a child out under her hoop skirt and walk out of the ghetto, and it, it works. She gets them out, and it gets them adopted into a family. So the next day, she's going to come back and do the same. On the seventh or eighth day, uh, after she'd taken out around seven of them, the child had the croup and is going to cough. A German soldier is going to hear it, immediately knock her over in a fury that exposed the child. The child's going to be lifted up and immediately shot right in front of her, and then she is executed right on the spot without discussion. You dare stand up for the weak and the vulnerable, and the powers of darkness want to beat you back into subjection. Imagine if you're looking on and you were thinking of helping. What's your next thought? I crave life more than I crave rescue. And what love says is I'm willing to expend my life that even one would be rescued. These are hard decisions for us as Christians, but imperative that we think them through now and not later. So Luis Grebe, and I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name, but her son Fritz Grebe, also known as Herman, is his, is his formal name, he's going to be one of those rescuers in World War II. And his mom constantly raised him with one key thought. Whenever she would see something, and she was, it, was, it was measuring someone's character, she would always ask this, Fritz, what would you do in that situation? And then Fritz is going to grow up and he is going to pull off what most people would say no one in their right mind should ever do. He is going to rescue hundreds of Jews. And he is working for the Nazis in building. He's, a, he's an engineer, but he is going to leverage his position strategically to rescue the weak. And I tell you what, this is what we need to hear. We need to study lives like this. We need to recognize what builds a Fritz Grabe. We need to understand the mechanics of a Christian that does what he, he or she must do in the darkest of moments. How are we built into instruments of love? Not just instruments of good doctrinal thought, but instruments that live out that doctrine with our hands and our feet. Father, only you can do this in us. Here we are, Lord Jesus. Build us for such an hour. Build us to be expended. Build us to love well. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.